0: Hello, everyone, Michael here. Before we get to today's episode, I wanna share some exciting news with you, and that is registration for the second Blueprint Retreat is open. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Blueprint Retreat is, it's a time for us to gather together alongside others, uh, those of us who have left our spiritual home, our tribe of origin, and are filled with questions and doubts and skepticism and curiosity but have this sense that even though we've let go of the answers we've been given, there's something within that tells us there's something more to be discovered. And so this is a time for us to join alongside others uh, who are grappling with similar questions about faith and considering what it might look like to begin the work of constructing something together, to sketch a faith for the next season with the hopes that it may lead us to build something new. Because one thing that I've learned is more people in more places are asking similar questions. And so often we feel isolated and alone because of those questions. And the Blueprint Retreat's a time for us to see we're not alone. It's a time for us to come together and encounter fellow sojourners, to hit pause on our normal pace of life, and to enjoy the beauty of the outdoors and the mountains and imagine what a renewed and vibrant faith could look like. One of my great joys is that those who gathered together on the first Blueprint Retreat have continued the process of journeying together. They're continuing to meet together and be together because something was born in them recognizing that they're not alone as they walk through what can sometimes feel like a slog when it comes to our faith. And so the next Blueprint Retreat will be uh, Friday, April 24 through Sunday, April 26th. It'll be just outside Winter Park, Colorado. And if you are interested, you can go to michael-hidalgo.com backslash blueprint. That's michael-hidalgo.com backslash blueprint. And you can click there, you can get more details, and you can register to be with us. I would love to see you there, to spend time with you, and to get to know one another and others even more than we already do. So with that said, here is today's episode hello everyone and welcome to the changing faith podcast this is the third installment of a series we are doing on the podcast focusing on the new year beginning 2020 with some ideas that could lead us toward living with greater intention taking a moment to step back and contemplate ourselves and our world and how we're moving within it. And today I'm thrilled to have my good friend Kent Dobson with us. Kent is the primary teaching voice at C3, West Michigan's inclusive spiritual community in Grand Haven, Michigan. He is also currently in the Soul Apprenticeship Program, an initiation program at the Animus Valley Institute here in Colorado, where he's training to be a nature-based underworld guide. On top of that, Kent leads pilgrimages to Israel, and we will have our next one in April 2021, so if you want more information on that, send me an email. But he is here with us this morning, and Kent, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thanks. Appreciate it. So first, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, what our listeners should know
1: about you. Well, I don't know. we grew up together, Michael and I, from the sixth grade uh, on... And um, we grew up in the, in going to the same church. My dad was a pastor of this big church that looks like a pyramid in, uh, <laughs> agreed, it does look like it a does. pyramid, yes. in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, we were in the youth group together, uh, Michael and I. We worked together at a camp for a few years. <laughs> we both went to Christian colleges. I went to Liberty in Virginia, which some people tell me I, I need not advertise. But I have no shame about it. I went to Liberty. This is Jerry Falwell's school in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is also where I grew up um, before I moved to Michigan. And uh, I was on the soccer team there and studied English. And after that, I was a part of a, a basically like a startup church back in Grand Rapids. And um, I don't know. Was the worship leader eventually? I got the itch to study the Bible. Went to Lived in Jerusalem for three years um, with my family. I'm married. Now I have three kids. We had just had one kid when we first moved to Israel. And that was a wild, like, crazy time in my life. I've written a bit about that in my, in my book, Bitten by a Camel. Um, and now, I don't know. I'm, um, I kind of left evangelical megachurch world, this church in Grand Rapids, Mars Hill, which I eventually became the pastor of. And now I'm a part of this inclusive spiritual community, which is which is kind of amazing. It's like um, uh, we just have value statements, and I mean, personally, I can teach on what or whatever I want. Uh, but people have a variety of backgrounds. We have some Jewish people, we have some Christians, we have some non-Christians, we have sort of the atheists, um, and our values sort of hold the community. Um, I guess is the ground of the community, the kinds of things that we're talking about. Uh, it's been a real uh, gift in my life, and and like you said, I'm also in this program at Animas Valley Institute, which is in Durango, um, learning how to take people out to wild places and do soul oriented work. So, I don't know, that's like a drive through version. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you and what I want to talk about this morning is the the soul work. Um, that you're leading people through and that you yourself are going through. Because you have uh, you have your own podcast called Hints and Guesses. Mm-hmm. And there's a series that I've enjoyed listening to on that called Stuff That Helps. Um, and so I want to ask about a few of those. And then there's another one other episode that we talked about earlier this week um, that I want to bring up as well for people to, to listen and listen to. But um, thinking about those episodes, many of them, there's kind of a theme, speak toward your desire to see us as human beings grow up, and that's even on your website, grow up and show up. Mm -hmm. And the the first episode in the Stuff That Helps series is based on the initiated adult. Um, So can you just talk a little bit about that? Because initiation seems to be something that's a distant concept in our culture.
1: Yeah, I guess, I mean, at first I'd maybe say something personal. When at the beginning, or maybe middle, of my own sort of crisis of faith, which initially looked at, which I initially looked like, um, <clears throat> who is God, uh, what is the Bible, what is faith, how did how did Christianity come to be a religion? These are all things that I was personally studying, but also sort of pulling at the, I don't know what's the phrase, pulling the rug out from underneath my my own feet when it came to my tradition, my faith tradition. But the deeper I went into sort of my own crisis, the more I realized, actually, this is kind of what I might call a psycho-spiritual crisis, meaning it's psychological and spiritual at the same time. And so for me, it just wasn't about only about questions about God. But really, I I would have said, even then, I want to grow up. I want to grow up out of even out of this sort of vortex that I was in. And I started bumping into books. um, like I don't know Robert Bly's Iron John, which I read about four times. Richard Rohr has a book on initiation called Adam's Return, and I started I, I started to be drawn to I guess that's the best way to say it this notion of growing up from adolescence to adulthood through a series of ordeals, and or as Jung would put it, from the first half of life to the second half of life, and initiation is is a concept that every single human culture we know of had, especially for men. Also women also had various kinds of initiation rights and they're not exactly, they're not exactly like they don't, they don't manufacture change. They, it's more like they mark this transition hmm. from um, really a much more egocentric an ethnocentric worldview, meaning me, 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 or my tribe, my tribe, to a more world-centric, generative, service-oriented, in other words, being a real adult. And almost all initiation rites in the ancient world uh, involved nature, and sometimes Intense exposure to nature, and that's actually what I see in the Jesus story, with fasting in the wilderness for forty days and forty nights. This is a, in a way, a kind of self-guided initiation rite of passage, and he goes from being a thirty-year-old that lives at home, who knows what 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 the hell he was doing at home, to <laughs> then then launching into this life-changing, risky, um, service-oriented way of being in the world, and. In part, that was in deep conversation with the natural world and with his own soul and with his own understanding of God, I'm imagining. And that's just a common theme. So I I started moving toward programs like that, and Animus offers a various... Various kinds of initiation-oriented experiences—they don't man—you don't like sign up and then boom, you're changed. It's not the way it works. But it's more like something is changing already in your psyche and in your soul and in your life, and and they're simply turning up the heat by taking people outside Mm. and um, offering various kinds of practices. But more importantly, just letting the natural world do its work on you. Um, So I've done like a vision fast, uh, and I know that. People often associate that with sort of uh, Native American or Lakota practices, and certainly they—that that is true. That's in another book called Black Elk Speaks, which I also read. Um, but it's transcultural, transreligious. You can find fasting, and especially fasting in nature, in just about every uh, culture on the planet. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- so those are the things that I got into, I suppose. I sort of forgot the the question. The well, question we, were, was we were talking about, yeah, initiation. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know what else I would say about it, other than um, it's not. I'm realizing that my own personal story, many, many other people also are a, are attracted to this kind of thing. Like modern life just does not have significant rites of passage that really act as a, a catalyst and also a call on your life to live the largest story you can possibly live. I mean, think about our rites of passage right now. I turned 16 and I can drive around. Um, I turn 18 and I can die in the, in war or gamble, or I turn 21 and I can go to the bar and get drunk. Um, that's uh, other than war. I, I mean, because my brother's in the military and that is a kind of rite of passage for sure. Um, and, and not the healthiest one. I mean, he's suffered significantly from his tours in, in Iraq and, and in Africa. So, um, but mostly our culture is a culture of entitlement when it comes to initiation. I'm going to initiate you into the entitlement of getting drunk at the bar or um, getting a loan for your car. You know, that stuff is just, not, it's, just it's, it's void of depth and and people know this now and parents know this, thinking about their own kids and parents feel it themselves. It's like, like I felt like um, I'm, a, I'm an adolescent raising children, you know, and I wanted to be an adult. Yeah, And and much more so, eventually an elder. And we live in a kind of an elderless culture, other than, of course, our politicians.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what, in your understanding, why is it that we, largely in the Western world, um, have moved away from these rites of passages and these initiations um, that's led us to be, really, in an adolescent culture?
1: I don't know the answer to that, to tell you the truth. I think some of it has to do with... Um, maybe just industrial growth society, which is is a consumer-oriented society. So we've shifted meaning in many respects to material possessions. And I'm even, you know, I'm not above this. I think my life will have meaning. I mean, I'm not saying this consciously. It's, it's probably more of an unconscious thing. My life will have meaning if I have the right kind of stuff mm-hmm. or if I have more of the right kind of stuff or I live in the right kind of place or... That's, that's what a consumeristic culture offers up. And in a way, it is meaningful. Like people say, oh, I moved from this neighborhood to this neighborhood, and I, you know, I upgraded, and my kids got into a better school, and so forth and so on. And um, I don't know, I mean, I guess that's one guess at it. And, and with that, I think um, there's, a, there's a kind of worship in a way of the individual. And, and I'm not against sort of individual spiritual paths. I, I sort of believe in that sort of thing. Um, however, the I don't know, in the age of the selfie, um, <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, just oh, selfie I know. As, a, as a metaphor, um, here I am projecting this, this m- my image out into the world, and that is a very isolating thing. And with that, no elders or adults sort of Helping us grow up out of such an egocentric place. So, Mm. I mean, so maybe I'm saying the collapse of wisdom a wisdom tradition mixed with materialism and consumerism and industrial growth um, Consumerism as the as the most obvious form of meaning those are maybe some of the streams that Have fed into the reality that we just don't have things like this anymore And I and I I guess what I'm saying is they need to be revived And and even the church is a better alternative to just more things at Costco, meaning at least the church is saying, come here, we're trying to talk about meaning, and actually there are some rites of passage, like baptism, Mm -hmm. or confirmation, or I know they don't, um, oftentimes they're like checking a box, but sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes they're not. When someone dies, like a friend, a very close friend of mine died last year, and I went to the funeral. And it was in um, an Anglican church and they brought his ashes up onto the, um, like this altar and right in the center. And just imagine in your mind, this is an old chapel, stained glass windows. And they had that kind of platform where the choir rows face one another. Have you ever seen that? You Uh know, like the wooden benches facing one another and, and the, um, and the choir's up there, and the, the priest, there's more than one priest there, and they put his ashes in the middle. And the main priest, I guess that's what you call him, um, is just like shaking incense, like swinging his arm back and forth, shaking incense over the dead body. It's like, oh my God, this is, there's so much meaning here. There's so much honoring of the life-death-life cycle of this human story, and, you know, um, I don't know. And it was just like one little flash of, okay, the church is is still at at certain times holding the post of these great rituals. I mean, initiation, maybe I should say something else. Now I'm getting excited about it. Um, (laughs) What are the other big natural initiations? Becoming a parent. Well, birth. Yep. um, That's an initiation for the parent and the baby. You know, it's this terrifying, terrible tumble into this new life and in this new mode and role and you have something like puberty. Um, you have something like marriage and, and there's a knock at the door. Okay. I'm going to use this. There's a knock at the door thing in a so, second.
0: So there was, by the way, we're, we're at my house and uh, a repairman showed up. I had no idea we had the appointment, but anyway, we're back and the repairman's still
1: here. So yeah. we might get interrupted again. So to finish my, my thought, I mean, and then initiation, um, Terms of death, you know the the final initiation into the mystery, and um, and it's it, it, here's another way to think about it. So imagine you you spend the first half of your life constructing a house, and um, you know you have certain tools, you have certain materials, and you're you're putting this thing together, and it's and it's mostly not exclusively but mostly to your liking, you're, you, it has a certain shape, um, you paint the walls a certain color, um, your plumbing doesn't work and so you replace it and so forth and so on and, and one day, you're nearing the end of this project, this construction of, the, of this first house and you're, um, you're about to put on the final light switch cover and you place the light switch cover on and you sit down on the couch and you turn on the TV and you can finally put your feet up and there's a knock on the door and you go to the door, and there's this mysteriously cloaked figure that whispers something to you like, It's time to leave. And you walk out. Um, that's what I'm talking about when it comes to initiation. I thought my first half of life constructed egoic persona was who I was. And I realized it served me well. But if I'm going to really grow up and really um, go on what, what, what we might call the journey of soul initiation or, or, um, soul descent. Uh, I'm going to have to walk out of this first house and really never go back. Um, and that's scary. And, and that's the kind of work that I'm committed to and, and involved in. And, and of course a rite of passage doesn't manufacture that. It simply just marks that makes it sacred names that it's such a thing. Um, and then I don't know, provides a framework, just for putting one foot in front of the other in, in the sort of mysterious thing I'm trying to describe.
0: Yeah. And and in that, and that leaving behind this kind of the segue to the second question about grief and change is in the work I do, I meet so many people who are, I would say a combination of fearful and, and sad for lack of a better term about having to leave that first house. Mm -hmm. And we're not people. Well, for me, I had a therapist. My therapist asked me, <clears throat> I don't know, some season ago about grief, and I didn't even know how to grieve. I hadn't hadn't been trained in that. But you talk about this too on stuff that helps is this idea of grieving and change. So, how does grief play into that sense of I'm leaving this? The use your imagery, this first house that I worked to build, mm-hmm. um, and how is that essential for our change
1: and transformation? Yeah, what an interesting question. Um, again, I'll speak personally. For me. Grief was the initial doorway. I Mm. went on my first Animus program, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and I fell into a well of grief that I didn't know was there. And at the time, um, I could not, my wife even asked, she's like, well, what what were you upset about? And I had no idea. That's Mm. what I said. I do not know um some, some tra- I fell through some trapdoor and there is something like a, an underground reservoir of grief that I I never knew was there, mixed with some anger and disappointment and confusion. and um, you know, many spiritual teachers talk about grief as a, as a doorway, as a doorway to change. Um, and wh- how I would put that now is that I, I think, the kind of grief I was just beginning to feel was connected to what I would call the unlived life. Just this feeling of what kind of life am I living? Hmm. And, and what if I died having not really lived, um, to the, not, not some, in some kind of perfect sense, not at all. And, but just the one wild and precious life that I've been given. uh, What, what am I doing? And that, that's that feeling of the unlived life. Um, and I don't know. So for me, the uh, grief was a real a real gateway. And actually, a lot of the practices um, that I both encourage and, and help lead people with have to do with grief. You know, I'll, I'll send people out on what I call grief walks or or to, to go out to a wild a wild place and um, create something like a circle and and to. Tell your life story, in a sense, to the wild world mm. as an act of grief, and see what happens. I mean, you can't again. You can't like make yourself grieve, but once you really begin to say, "This is what it's like to be me," oftentimes, whole um, a, a whole well um, underground reservoir does open up. And 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 I think as a culture, we don't know how to grieve. Like I just said, something real positive about church and. And, and a funeral I went to, but also oftentimes funerals are the last place of grief. It's just filled with um, magical fantasies about how uh, everything is fine and they're actually happy. And I should be happy that my, my dad died, you know, cause he's in a better place and that's not grief. <laughs> right. Um, time to wail and um, smash your fists in the ground and, and cry. And, um, and, and so rituals like that, I think, Help the soul expand, the heart mm. expand, and, and we need more
0: of that, in my view. Yeah, when you live in a culture that's based on winning and achieving and <laughs> growing, right? The idea of dissent—you already used that
1: word—and mm. grief and loss doesn't. There's doesn't no congruity, compete. right? Yeah, yeah. Just think about the president. He's always talking about winners, and Rilke, <laughs> Rilke has this this line. He says, "When we win, it's with small things." Mm-hmm. And oh my God, that's so true. When we win, it's with small things. Like think about even like winning a game, like, oh, we beat them, you know? It's just like so small. Okay, so you won an artificial game with artificial rules. Um, so when we win, it's with small things. And at the end of the poem, he says, um, he's using that image of, of Jacob wrestling the angel. He says, uh, the invitation is to be defeated decisively by greater beings that's the nature of growth yeah man
0: well okay so then there's a pattern to to your stuff that helps thing because then the third one you talked about is transcendent include which is my uh, we've talked about this a lot in our context transcendent include. some say it's include and transcend Um, I would add to it some of some of that is naming um, things that we've had to to leave behind as well. It helps us in the idea of including, but talk to us a little about that piece in this movement forward, the transcendent include, which comes from, uh, Ken Wilber, Richard Rohr talks a lot
1: about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Um, maybe the first thing I would say about transcendent include is that, um, it's a fairly easy concept to understand. And, and just because you understand the concept doesn't mean you're doing it. <laughs> right. So, um, I mean, even if I just think about, let's just take one example, like the Bible. So I grew up just completely immersed in biblical passages and stories, and all of them, and the most obscure ones. Even when I went to graduate school in Israel, and I had professors who knew their stuff, sometimes I felt like I know the Bible better than they do. And not because I'm smart, just because I was like, the, that was the water i was swimming in. so and then when the bible started to change in it, you know, i'd went through my own deconstruction and so forth. i mean, there were times when i was like i cannot read this thing anymore, right? and at about that same time i was i was beginning to be introduced to the concept of transcendent include. and initially i just thought that's something i have to do. Mm-hmm. like it's a matter of will. i'm going to will myself to include these the biblical stories or bits and pieces of my own tradition as I sort of transcend higher levels of consciousness, <laughs> something like that. But I realize that's, that's not how it works, not for me. In fact, I might say this, to come back to this well of grief I was talking about before, um, being down in that underground space and feeling like my world is unraveling, All of a sudden, things like Jesus weeping Hmm. or things like Jonah being swallowed by saying something like, just throw me overboard, and then being swallowed by the ocean and swallowed by a fish and being taken down, I realized that is true. Mm -hmm. And that is including and transcending. Not I'm going to take a story and try to make it like I'm going to try to rework the theological details to match my now supposedly higher level of consciousness. I just think y- you realize it's true. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
0: And then what is, help, help us understand even just fundamentally for those who aren't familiar, what is this, this concept of transcend and include? What, what is that? <laughs> I don't, um, well,
1: you'd have to listen to my stuff that helps. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pause. <laughs>
0: Okay, so yeah. we're back. There's an air compressor in the background. <laughs> we're trying to transcend and include.
1: We're going to include sounds. the sounds. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to summarize uh, briefly, but I think just conceptually it might be worth saying. There's something like <laughs> levels of consciousness um, or psycho-spiritual stages. Uh, and the higher, or maybe you just want to think about it as a concentric rings moving out or like rings in a pond the further out you move in terms of levels of consciousness or stages of faith would be another way of saying it um you have uh, the invitation is to include previous stages that's a real sign that um you're you're growing up not just rejecting the past um so i mean that's the basic notion so uh, if 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 um uh yeah. I mean, I, like, again, we'd have to use concrete examples like like the Bible, for example, right. um, when I was taught this is the infallible, inerrant holy word of God. That's 100 percent true in all of its uh, in in every respect, including scientific, scientifically valid literalism, <laughs> something like that. Um, to move beyond that, which I think isn't just changing my ideas about that, but it's a real shift in consciousness that actually, no, I, uh, I'm not even asking those kinds of questions anymore. A sign of growth would be then the, my own capacity to include, um, the gifts of that particular, uh, worldview or that particular stage. Yeah. Um, that's just a sign of a healthier person because, right now we live in a culture that is completely dualistic. Let's say you're conservative and you, you all of a sudden change your mind about some things and you find yourself with your progressive friends. If it's a wholesale rejection of who you were and your family and all those close minded bigots and so forth and so on. When I see that, I think that's not, they haven't grown at all. They've simply right. changed their mind and changed enemies. Yeah. It's the same level of consciousness. But, a real shift in consciousness would look like something like, okay, I'm not there anymore. I My my world now includes a whole lot of other people and ideas that it didn't include before, but I haven't wholesale rejected. I might disagree with certain things from, right. from my sort of conservative place that I once was, but it's not a wholesale rejection of the other. In fact, I'm able to even see the gifts in uh, uh, what does it mean to conserve and preserve And, uh, and maintain some boundaries. If you can't see that, then you're at this this exact same level of consciousness. You've just swapped out enemies. Like I said before.
0: Yeah. It's people who look back at their former Mm -hmm. way of thinking with disdain. Yeah. Uh, and, And there's a measure I think of maybe arrogance in the way that they look at it too. Of, Oh, I was so stupid back then. I was so close minded. There's a guy named Doug King who describes it, um, which I really like as thinking about going from kindergarten to 12th grade that when you're in calculus, the multiplication tables you learned in third grade are still needed, even yeah. though if you're in calculus, you're not going to be spending your time working on those kind, kind of things. Mm-hmm. But we don't reject it because it's still a part of us and still with us. Yeah, um, that, that metaphor and so works for sure. We talk a lot on the, on this podcast about making peace with your past, yeah, about revisiting
1: it and um, yeah. Well, let me just say something about making peace because I have, in my experience, one pathway for doing that is grief and even mm. rage. I don't think you can tell yourself, don't get angry about what you were taught or yeah. raised or, um, or even in some people's case, the abuse they received under either, either, uh, physical abuse or psychological abuse or something like that. Um, and there is a time and a place for grief and rage and, and even rejection, but to let that pass all the way through you yeah. and to let that do its work on you, um, is part of the invitation. And, um, and I think that's, in a way, it seems counterintuitive, yeah. um, but it, it, that seems to be how the psyche grows, I mm. think. All right. Let's talk about
0: the Wild Mind episode, the work of Bill Plotkin. This is a little bit more. You referred to it several times now by Animus Valley Institute. But mm. t- talk to us just a little bit about th- this program that you're in, what you're learning through, it, maybe even who Bill Plotkin is as the yeah, okay. drill drones in the background. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Um, so yeah, Bill Plotkin is a psychotherapist and he's been leading sort of outdoor retreats and programs since the 1980s. And he left the world of academic, uh, psychology professorship in the eighties and, uh, kind of went on his own. He, sometimes he calls himself a psychologist gone wild. So Initially, he was interested in some of the very things that I was describing before, which are rites of passage and initiation and ordeals and vision fasts and things like that, but contemporary versions of it, like saying something like, we do not need to go back and try to imitate, but um, what what wisdom do these old traditions have that, that need to be born anew in the 21st century? And um, I think... His work and the work at Animus Valley Institute has kind of two sides. One is what you mentioned before, which is the Wild Mind Map, mm-hmm. and I'll talk about that in a second. And then, and the other side is what might what might be called soul initiation or um, uh, the journey of soul initiation, and they're related. We could say so. The Wild Mind Map is comes from a book of his called Wild Mind. And he takes the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, west, and says something. it says something like this, the natural world um, mirrors back to us uh, in its own wholeness, what our own inner wholeness looks like. So for example, he takes the north, south, east, west um, wheel and says, in each person, every single person, regardless of race, uh, gender, social, economic, class, um, uh, language so forth and so on there are archetypes and there are many archetypes obviously but th- he sort of breaks down four main ones that he calls human facets of wholeness mm-hmm. and I'll just list them just so um, we have some idea of what we're talking about um, one is the nurturing generative adult that's more associated with the north um, and even if, if, and you can use your imagination what is the north like what's the climate like in the north what you know I, I'm imagining like a a solid um, sequoia, or a mountain, or a or a winter landscape, you know, and he says that's the nurturing, generative adult, the one, the part of our own wholeness that makes decisions uh, for the long term, hmm. you know, that can that can even weather um, trials and difficulties and make a plan for the future and so forth. Uh, the other side of that is the south, and that's the wild, indigenous one, which is much more suppressed in our culture. So this wild of the earth. Animalistic, body-oriented, feeling-oriented part of of human beings. Like Mary Oliver's poem, you do not have to be good; you just have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You mm-hmm. know, and that's that's scary for Western people, really. The South, you know, um, and even if you think about Southern cultures that are much more in the body, you know, much more. Uh, they're not going to show up at at dinner at five, but probably at nine, you know, and stay till two in the morning. You know, that's yeah. very so that's the wild indigenous one. And then the east-west poles, the east is the facet of wholeness that he calls the innocent sage, which is the, I don't know, that source of wisdom, that, mm. that a facet of wholeness that has to be cultivated, that we all possess, like Gandalf or something, you know, like <laughs> the inner Gandalf, you know. Um, uh, and he calls it innocent sage because he associates that with just also some lightness and sense of humor. Like think about the Dalai Lama. He's funny. He says something amazing, like humanity might be at the uh, at the brink of a spiritual collapse, and then he'll laugh. You know, you are like, that's not funny. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if he's actually said that. But you know what I mean. It's yeah. like wisdom and innocence combined. Jesus is a very East like person, for example, and in the West, the other pole, which is much more about descent, imagination, darkness, death, uh, poetry, which he calls the muse, beloved um, muse, meaning that creative, mysterious source of inspiration, as opposed to the East, which is like the beginning of the day and long, you know, vision, long term and um, possibility West is, is more like descent yeah. to soul darkness and also very suppressed in our Western culture. We don't like to talk about that. You yeah. Know? So anyway, he, he has this map and the wild mind programs help people like me and others um, cultivate these resources. Yeah. And then just inside those resources are, are what psychologists call subpersonalities, which I won't get into now, but they're just simply immature manifestations of those facets of wholeness. Hmm. Like our inner wounded child, our loyal soldier, our escapist, our addict, um, our shadows. These are just immature expressions of those larger facets of wholeness. And I, I really like this work because it believes strongly in human beings. Yeah. Like that... That yes, you can grow up and you have extraordinary resources and actually just um, working with them, particularly outside in the, in, the, in the natural world, helps strengthen them because life is hard. Yeah. Or life is suffering, as the Buddhists say. Yeah. And um, cultivating a bit of this is necessary and needed. I, and if you want to use some Christian language, when Jesus says something like, take up your cross... I think I hear in that a little bit of take responsibility. You're yeah. going to have to do this. I will not do it for you. Yep. And that's, that requires some humility and some cultivation of resources. So that's wild mind stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm
0: excited. I'm actually going, uh, when is it? February. Um, this month I'm going uh, to be on the uh, wild mind thing in Joshua Tree. But um, let's talk about the magical other. <laughs> Okay,
1: so you're just throwing out things. All I'm right. just throwing things out, yeah. Okay, so, all right, the magical other. God, all right. Um, so something that's come into modern uh, language uh, among uh, somewhat sophisticated people like me and others. I'm not really sophisticated. <laughs> In other words, people start throwing around... The word projection. Oh, so and so is projecting. You know, oftentimes they don't really know. They have some idea of what that means, um, but the, the notion of the magical other is rooted in projection. So maybe just a few a few thoughts on projection. Um, it seems to be uh, a universal uh, notion. That all people, all people project onto some other bits and pieces of who they are, but they can't see it. So let's just take a, a very simple example. Let's say you are absolutely wildly and sort of unusually obsessed with some celebrity. All right. And you might say something like, the one thing I know about myself is I could never be like so-and-so. And so and and you're spending your day listening to their music and you're putting posters on the wall. And and probably what's happening is some element of your sort of underground uh, landscape is being... Okay, let's pause. All
0: right, so repair, is, repair has been done. So the repair <laughs> the repair guy has left and we're just going to leave all this in here. So let's go back to... You're talking about celebrities. I yeah, yeah, like, so... Um, posters yeah.
1: on the wall. Projection, yeah. Yes, there it so is. So some, some unowned... Uh, quality, it may be our own wildness, it may be our own creativity, maybe our own um, capacity to dream big dreams, we project onto some other. Um, same goes with negative stuff, like someone that really, really, really gets under your skin. Um, and it's almost doesn't really make sense. This happened to me, I used to work with someone and I just every time he was in the room, I just my it's like I had I was hooked every time and afterwards I'd be complaining about them and they just seemed so inauthentic, you know, but the truth was I was being inauthentic (laughs) and placing that onto, that's what the nature of projection is. And people do that with, they love to hate Trump. Everybody loves to hate Trump, you know? And the one thing I know about myself is that I would never lie like Trump would, you know, at some point you're like, yeah, right. Um, You know? (laughs) So anyway, Um, So some notion of uh, of projection is probably needed to talk about The Magical Other. So The Magical Other um, is a phrase used by James Hollis. He's a Jungian psychoanalyst and prolific author, amazing. He has like so many good books that are very accessible. Um, And he has two that are related to The Magical Other. So in one book, I think it's called The Eden Project, he really sort of lays out the concept. So he basically says that romantic relationships – um, or what we might even call romantic fantasies, <laughs> something like uh, mutual projection is happening. And he's not saying this is bad. Like you hear this and like a oh, projection's happening. This must be bad. No, it's not bad. But inside each of us, we carry what he calls a magical other. And it's an amalgam. It's an amalgam of our own mother and father or primary caregivers. It's an amalgam of our initial loves or lovers or fantasies or experiences. Um, And it's an amalgam of our own shadow elements, things we don't know about ourselves yet. And that sort of um, inner being quote, the magical other is what we experience when we turn head over heels for someone we're placing. It's not like we're, totally missing the other person but we are missing a lot of who they are because the person that we're falling in love with is actually a mystery to us we don't know really anything about them and when people say things like as soon as we met I knew it's like I had always known this person what really is happening from the psychological point of view is that I'm uh, my magical other is being activated and these parts that I don't know anything about are I'm projecting onto this other human being, hmm. and that's why they're so fired. That's why they're so fun. Falling in love is so fun because it's like, oh my god, like we could never be apart. And and um, like, what's that, Jerry Maguire line? Um, you, complete you complete me. me. Okay. <laughs> that that is the you very, had me at hello. Yeah, you had me at hello. That is the that is the quintessential um, symbol of the magical other. You know, you complete me. Actually, no, you complete yourself in the sense of. These unknown qualities, you have to own back if you want to become a mature, whole human being as much as possible, and then you're really somebody that can meet the mystery of the other. But it always starts in projection. And Mary Louise von Franz, this is one of Jung's students, says something like, thank God for projection because how else are we going to own these parts? Hmm. So let's just take a a long-term relationship and make up a scenario for a second. Let's say one person is kind of wild and free and, um, it's bad with a budget and, you know, and the other person is, uh, is good with money and makes responsible decisions and they quote fall in love. And, um, the wild sort of person is like, oh, I could never be, you know, I need you to keep me grounded, you might say. And the other person might be saying, like, I need you to keep me free and um, and take some risks. And, and some of that is true. But if the relationship is going to mature, the supposed wild person is going to have to take responsibility for their own life. Right. And the buttoned up um, person is going to have to access more of. Oh, more of the South, as what I'm mentioning before, the wild indigenous one, and find their own inner freedom and not have this codependent dynamic always at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just part of growing up. So the reason why I think the magical other is such an important notion right now is because uh, things like divorce, splitting up don't have the kind of stigma that it once had, you know, um, I don't know what it's like for you, but most of my friends are getting divorces. I mean, really, it used to be that they were having babies and now they're getting divorced. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you, I can see now that what, what can happen is that you start saying, um, it's not the person I married. Um, which is another way of, of saying the projections that I placed upon this person are collapsing. <laughs> hmm. um, and you end up blaming most of the time the partner, right? Saying, if I would have known you were A, B, C and D, we wouldn't have gotten together, which is another way of saying the A, B, C and D projection that I placed on you was false. And so what, ha- what can happen is that you reject the other and you say something like I just picked the wrong person and you repeat the cycle all over again. And sometimes the very same projections you placed on partner A, you now place on partner B. And it's just not helping people grow up, you know. And now we have these, like, Tinder things. And, not, you know, I'm not against online whatever you call that thing. Um, <laughs> dating. Online dating. Yeah, online yeah, dating. dating. Um, where you're, you're, you actually... You, you're saying I'm looking for da, da 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 da, laying it all out, and in some ways it's just a greater opportunity for these magical fantasies to come out and say I have to be with this kind of person. Yeah. And guess what? That who, even if they match your 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 profile, um, and they're going to sorely disappoint you. Yeah. That's called long term relationship. Get ready for bitter disappointment. Yeah. Um, and with that becomes a major on ramp for growth for both parties, at least in my view. So that's kind of the notion of the magical other. Um, but James Hollis is the man is the man for that, you know? And so in this projection, mm-hmm. you talk about the, the on-ramp for growth.
0: Is it at some point you begin confronting in your own self, yeah. those projections? Is that, yeah. Is that the way forward?
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, a, a, a bitter disappointment, we all know the feeling when somebody betrays us or things don't work out the way we wanted them to do. If you can start turning from that person is the problem to what do I need to own? Yeah. That's the beginning of it. All right. What, and, and I probably should have said this maybe more clearly earlier. Um, but a lot of the magical other fantasies are rooted in the mother father dynamic. Mm -hmm. You know, no one likes to say this, but sometimes, or I was going to make an exaggerated statement, so maybe I'll just keep sometimes. We're placing on the partner, I want you to be my mother or I want you to be my father. We're not saying that, but there's like an unconscious motivation, take care of me, nurture me, meet all my needs, pay my bills, um, never leave me, never betray me. That's, uh, that's a projection of the mother-father dynamic. The, the thing that you actually know now as an adult, your parent can't live up to, you project onto the partner Hmm. and you marry your mother and your father. And it's worse than that. Not only do you marry your mother and father, you want to sleep with them. You know, so it's like, talk about a confusing thing. Take care of me, nurture me, um, and also be my lover and so forth and so on. I mean, it's just like the the amount of material that we expect the other person to do is just too enormous Mm -hmm. and that's going to crack. And that's what I'm saying. So it's going to crack. And then it's time to say, all right, I need to be my own mother and father. I need to 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 grow up myself and be the nurturing gender of adult in my own life and not expect my partner to do all that for me, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And that's that's moving toward this idea of elder that you talked about earlier.
1: Well, I think in the long in the long run, yeah. Yeah. I think it's part of it. I think so, yeah. I mean this if if you just take the archetypes of child adolescent adult elder yeah it's on the it's on the the road to to that kind of wisdom yeah yeah i mean an elder is someone maybe among many things but who has as best they can taken responsibility for their own stuff yeah um and have found a voice um and then now is turning toward the greater community and maybe even the earth community um, as an act of sacrifice and service for the next generation of plants and animals and people so yeah. at least that's the way I think about an elder
0: all right so let's this is the last one
1: right. which was not a part
0: of the stuff that helps but it was a conversation we had uh, a few days ago the soul the soul doesn't care about your safe space this is the title of one of your episodes and we were talking about uh, those who are easily offended um, so talk to us a little bit about that and this is where we'll this is where we'll wrap up okay Um,
1: man Uh, safe spaces have become almost like a meme in our culture and the number of times that I've been in groups where people have said this is not a safe space um, or other people have said teachers and leaders my primary role is to create safe spaces on the one hand I'm for this because um, There are unsafe spaces, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially if you've experienced trauma, whether that's capital T or lowercase T, or um, uh, if you felt unsafe as a as a minority or as a woman or as a as a gay person or you know, the list goes on and on about um, the list goes on and on for peoples and, and, and groups who feel unsafe. And and that's a real thing. So. On the one hand, I'm for the creation of what we might call safe spaces. On the other hand, it's, it strikes me, at least in, in recent years, as, um, as a way of maintaining uh, a kind of, at its worst expressions, a kind of victim place, hmm. which is you, you have to do everything in your power to protect me emotionally so that I feel safe. And for really immature people, I think, yes, that's true. Um, but that keeps us in a relatively immature space is part of what I argue in this, in this episode. You have to listen to it, and it's been a while since I've thought about what I said. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't listen to my own podcast. <laughs> oh, my favorite podcast is the Changing Faith podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, what I started what that what that episode is about is what role does the soul play in this because um and maybe just some definitions and i'll try to be really brief the ego is who we think we are in the world it's our egoic persona Mm -hmm. and that's often the thing that is saying i need a safe space okay and you can have a really unhealthy ego or you can have a relatively healthy ego. And part of why people are having such a hard time right now is that they need actually more ego strength. They need, um, they need, uh, to grow up just in terms of, uh, of an egoic structure that makes sense to them in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's why people get therapists. Honestly, a lot of therapy, and I'm not against therapists is actually about building ego strength. Yeah. Not tearing the ego down. No, but building ego strength. But the soul doesn't care about that. The soul doesn't care about your egoic persona. And actually, sometimes will put you in scenarios that are dangerous, unsafe, um, the possibility of risk, of failure, of collapse. That's when the soul starts to come alive. And what I mean by soul is who you are beneath your egoic persona. Mm. And the thing that needs this or that or i need this space to be like this and i need you to treat me like this and you can't use this kind of word around me because i'm triggered that kind of stuff that's all in my view egoic persona the soul doesn't play that game and and what we even might call an animus work and not only an animus but just in depth psychology in general the journey of soul descent when the soul starts calling the shots in your life it's actually very dangerous to the ego And suddenly you are actually in unsafe places and thus the possibility of of real change and growth. Hmm. And that can be terrifying. I mean, it's not like that's why it's almost like you need enough ego strength to have your ego challenged, you know. But my main point in the podcast was the soul doesn't care. It's not playing that game. And um and if you spend the rest of your life making sure every circle and group you're in plays by your own rules of language and posture and tone and that's not a that's that's not the kind of space where where the soul is going to thrive right so um i don't know and sometimes i think the soul is actually kind of very mysterious and uh i've even found like Uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but sometimes I I hear people's stories and it's almost like despite their best efforts to make sure their marriage, their job, their career went as planned, the soul was busy planting little landmines to blow all that up. Yeah. And like the moment they got to the, the office and the position that they wanted, then they get fired. And I'm not saying the soul is like God and it's like do meddling with all this stuff. But in some ways I'm saying it's a mysterious thing that might just blow up your life. And that is scary. And, but the journey of soul descent is in some respects is to say, all right, I'm going to tumble into this unknown world and that's going to require, um, courage. And I'm not going to be able to, um, create all these safe spaces for me to go through it. Well, it yeah. just doesn't work that way, at right. least in my view.
0: Right. And so how do you talk a little bit about this, this journey? Then you talked about ego, strength, soul. What are, what are some of the steps maybe that you've taken or that you
1: understand we ought to take, um, toward that? What the, to, to, the journey of soul? Yeah, to, yeah, to the journey of soul. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it begins with a series of questions and, and here's how they feel to me. Um, what's my true voice? Mm -hmm. You know, Thomas Merton talks about the true self. Well, that implies that there's some kind of false self or some kind of constructed self, I might say. And again, that's not bad. We all have to have it. That's the first house that we talked about before. But when the question starts to when the question starts to feel inescapable, what is my real voice? What is my is there a calling on my life that I know very little about? Mm. Um, is there a way of being in the world that actually, I started saying with my therapist, I wonder if there is a natural Kent that I've lost contact with. Hmm. I don't really, that, that was just, just came out of my mouth one day. And that seemed true to me. Like instead of the Kent, who's, uh, has all these roles, pastor and whatever, 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 what's my natural way of being? And, and am I missing out on, on something? That's the, that's the beginning of that. The pull toward dissent. And the reason why it feels like dissent is because you have to begin to let go of these roles, you know, and maybe things that I was talking about before, like grief or spending time in nature or wandering or um, for me, I I quit my job. That's not something I recommend. Like there's not a there are not five steps to this. But for me, it felt I am not going to grow up if I remain in an evangelical megachurch at, at the center of it. Yeah. And I'm not against them. Like I wasn't even against Marcel. I wasn't like the problem is you guys and I'm out of here. I actually, it was much more like, I, I cannot grow up without, and I have to walk into the unknown. Yeah. And for right now I have to say I'm done. And that, so anything that feels like letting go of these Roles and names and beginning what I what I might call a true wander um, feels like at least that's that's the archetype or the symbol the wander the archetype for the symbol for beginning the the journey of soul descent hmm. and and sometimes you need a therapist and sometimes you need help and um, but let's let's not confuse um, therapy for the journey of soul descent because oftentimes like I said before. Some counselors and therapists want to patch life back together again to keep things intact. Yeah, and the soul is saying something like, "No, down in the abyss, there's oh, I've got some. I want to read <clears> to <throat> you. Hold on. Okay, this will we'll end with this. This from <laughs> <laughs> watch I'm, out almost... for the shelf with glasses on it. <laughs> okay, so this is a line. This is a passage from Tayard. Thierry de Chardin? Yep, yep. Um, some, from a, his book called The Divine Milieu. And this is about the journey of soul descent. So he says I took the lamp and leaving the zone of everyday occupations and relationships where every se- everything seemed clear, mm-hmm. I went down into my inmost self. So you can hear like everyday occupations, relationships, personas, we might say, my own egoic. Uh, self Mm -hmm. and I started to go down into my inmost self he says to the deep abyss whence I feel dimly that the power of my action emanates so in other words there's some kind of emanating power in the abyss of who I am that he's now curious about that's getting curious about the descent of soul and he goes on but as I moved further and further away from conventional certainties by which social life is superficially illuminated. That This is such good writing. But as I move further and further away from conventional certainties, I know who I am. I know the rules of the game. I've got my safe spaces. This is my the group I can be with, and that's the group I can't be with. Conventional certainties by which social life is superficially illuminated. I became aware that I was losing contact with myself. Hmm. And this is where that dread starts coming in, at least for me. Whoa, I am losing contact with who I thought I was. And it's like, oh shit, you know, he goes on at each step of the descent, a new person was disclosed within me. So it's like, I'm suddenly meeting these personalities or what psychologists might call sub personalities, Mm -hmm. um, images or archetypes. I didn't know were there. They could be resources or they could be like parts that I'm like, whoa, uh, I'd ra- I see why that's been in the basement all these years, yeah. you know, stuff that you're kind of afraid to admit once you start discovering it. So I be- um, at each step of the descent, a new person was disclosed within me of whose name I was no longer sure. I don't even know what to call these people, he's saying, that I'm meeting in my inmost self. They don't even have names. They're almost like energies or archetypes or ways of being um, and who no longer obeyed me. And I think what he's saying there is that these sub-personalities in my inmost self don't play by my ego's rules. All right? We're almost done. (laughs) And when I had to stop my exploration because the path faded from beneath my steps, so he's going down further and further, the path is fading, I found a bottomless abyss at my feet. Hmm. And out of it came a rising... I know not from where the current, which I dare call my life. Whoa. I know. Whoa <laughs> is right. So this current, we don't know what it is. Maybe it's the divine milieu, the name of his own book, you know? This current that actually is my life, that is even further beneath my not only my ego, but my sub personalities and the names and the things that no longer obey me there's the abyss, this yeah. bottom and nobody likes to walk to the edge of the abyss, but that's a journey of soul descent and if you begin and if this current begins to make to have um, begin to move in your life like up from the center of your being, this the current that is what he says that I dare call my life when that starts to to then um have sway on your life, get ready, you know, I mean, then you're living from that soul oriented place. Hmm. And all this, these ways of being in the world that you've artificially constructed, take second, um, second chair to the path of the soul. And, and that's what I see in the life of Jesus. That's what he's contacting in the desert, you know, this abyss. And out of that, he changes the world. He comes out of that and changes the world. That's someone who's, who's tasted a bit of of the mystery of the inmost soul or self, where I guess in this case is also the current of God. You might ask, also yeah. add. So anyway, we're talking about mysteries, of course. Yes, man. <laughs> Thanks, okay. man. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Uh, where can they find you online? KentDobson.com. I'm about to redo my. Well, I am redoing my website, so there'll be more on there. And you already mentioned my podcast, Hints and Guesses, got a couple have a book? books, yeah. I've got the NIV first century study Bible, um, which is a place where I tried to put all of my scholarly stuff that I learned over the years. I wrote the notes and articles for that. Um, And then my book, Bitten by a Camel, which came out a couple of years ago. I am working on a new book, but I don't I don't I can't say much about it. Not that it's like some, you know, some big secret. Yeah, no, it's just (laughs) that I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm working on another one. Uh, But yeah, that people can find me there. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Dude, thanks for being on the, uh, on the
0: podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks you to all of you who joined with us today for another episode. Uh, thanks for enduring the repairman and Kent almost knocking over our shelf uh, here in our house. My hope is that we would consider, as Kent has um, reflected, the path that is before us, one that invites us to change, to descend, to grow, to transform, and that we would be willing, uh, maybe even just a little bit more today, to undergo the difficult journey for ourselves and our world. And that is it for today's episode. So once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time, as always,
1: much love and peace be with you.